uh, after this webinar. So yeah, we've, we call these sessions the great debate where we pick a subject and we invite a special speaker and we get your uh, questions answered within about 60 minutes. Now, um, the future of work is a subject. There's only so much we can cover in 60 minutes with such a huge subject. Um, and it's funny because we often ask students and graduates in interviews, where do you see yourself in five years time? Maybe we need to start asking ourselves, where do we see our organizations in five, 10, 15 years time? With so much change, um, this is a real hot, hot topic. So welcome everyone, um, hope you're well and you're having a good day so far. Um, we've got a, a lot of questions to get through, thank you for submitting them. Um, and it is a hot topic, the future of work. Um, you know, a day doesn't go by without a headline, certainly about AI or uh, technology shaking up uh, our industry, but lots and lots of other topics uh, to keep us on our toes. And I, I just did a quick uh, Google search looking at news items on the future of work. Uh, it's actually a subject the Financial Times have covered, and you can see practically every uh, week in the last few months has been a subject covered on the future of work. So it could be about AI, it could be about chat GPT, uh, it could be about generational issues. So there's, you know, there's a huge range of subjects. Uh, the BBC picked up on how AI could replace uh, 300 million jobs um, and even CNN business uh, covered the way we work is about to change. So it's a very hot topic. And I actually thought, you know what, I'll put this into uh, chat GPT and see what that says. So I put in just earlier, the future of work is question mark. And it came up with a, a short list of uh, a few subjects that it thought was pretty relevant. So unsurprisingly, automation and AI was number one. Number two was the gig economy and flexible work and how that's all changing. Number three was remote work and digital connectivity. Number four, lifelong learning and reskilling. And number five was human centric skills. So I encourage you to have a look um, at some of the other topics that they covered within this uh, simple search term uh, that I put into chat GPT. So the future of work is our topic. Um, before I start, I'd just like to give a quick intro to who I am because we have quite a few new members in the group today and also for the benefit of some of our uh, podcast listeners as well. So my name's Dan Hawes. I'm the GRB co-founder, GRB standing for Graduate Recruitment Bureau, set up in 1997 when I graduated uh, in business studies from Brighton University. Uh, we've grown to become the go-to platform for high caliber university students, recent graduates, alumni and employers. We have around 75 staff, we're based in Brighton, and over 2,000 clients have used our services, uh, including very big organizations like Amazon, IBM, Unilever, Ocado, some big names, but also several fast-growing SMEs, the kind of companies that go under the radar for a lot of uh, students and graduates. Um, in that time, our recruitment experts have successfully matched over 8,000 graduates with full-time graduate or executive level jobs. Um, and I launched GRN, Graduate Recruiters Network in January 2009. So GRN, again, for the benefit of some of our new listeners, um, we aim to bring together HR advisors, HRBP people, recruitment managers, directors, early talent leads uh, to discuss current topics. Uh, we invite a number of relevant and influential speakers who are either practitioners, 
researchers or stakeholders within early talent. It's quite a niche area. Nothing much happens without the Graduate Recruiters Network hearing or knowing about it. So uh, we've steadily grown to around 3,577 members. 27 new members joined last month. Uh, a real mixture of companies, FTSE 100, Fortune 500, and also those fast-growing SMEs I mentioned before. So a really nice spread, uh, all with a vested interest in early talent recruitment. Uh, members receive invites to webinars like this, special in-person events, access to the uh, LinkedIn forum, our blog, surveys, and a brand new monthly newsletter. There are extra benefits for those wishing to be a VIP member. Right, so there's a quick overview as to uh, what the GRN is about and why you are here today to listen to our very special speaker. But just before we do, uh, also for the benefit of our speaker, uh, in the room we have a mixture of people, various stakeholders from very large firms, uh, some of their logos uh, along the bottom there that you will all have heard of, uh, but also um, a handful of careers staff from universities and some other uh, consultants who work in the early talent uh, space. So there are the managers, um, leaders or directors or heads of, um, all involved with graduate careers, student careers, uh, and also some school leaver professionals. So a nice mixture of uh, attendees today to discuss our hot topic. Right, um, over to our guest speaker. Now, uh, I met Adam at a talk in December 2022 at the Gherkin. Um, and that was about the future world of work. Um, so that was a very, very interesting uh, event. So I got to meet Adam there and find out a little bit more um, about his background. So you can find out on LinkedIn itself. Um, he was at ADECO for about 10 years, um, reaching very senior roles. And then in the last five years, uh, he's been the head of sales at LinkedIn. By the way, LinkedIn, I'm sure we've all heard of it. Um, it has 930 million users when I Googled it, which is absolutely incredible. Um, it started in 20, uh, 2002, 2000 rather. So it's been going um, over 20 years and it's a way of life for a lot of people in our industry. So I'm delighted to have uh, Adam come along uh, and talk about the future of work uh, for our members. Adam, over to you. Hi, nice to meet you, Dan. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure where you would like me to start, but maybe I just give a, a bit of a, a, a further view. Um, I'll set the scene and then maybe you can uh, ask me any question that, that you want. So uh, good to see everyone. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, I, I never uh, turned down an opportunity to talk about the future of work. So as, as you say, Dan, I, I work at LinkedIn. I've been here five years. Part of my role is, is yes, running part of our organization, which is our talent solutions. And that encompasses every type of company that you would imagine that uses our solutions. But I think for this audience, probably the most important and most, I would say, interesting part of my job is LinkedIn is effectively uh, an insights-based organization. I think, as you said, Dan, there's 930 million members. That's correct. So good research. Um, but I think what is important to that point is the organization sits on, you know, many millions of data points. So every time that we are searching, uh, 
and not necessarily for jobs, but for connections, for learning content or for news media. I think we are one of the biggest news media platforms. Actually, that creates a, a data point and a signal and that in aggregation, and I'll talk about some of those data points today, but they give us a very real time view of what is going on in, in the talent marketplace or uh, I would say that the, the sort of overall talent economy. So I spend a lot of time talking to, to people like yourself and to industry and some some are firm data points, but what you'll hear from me today are some of my opinions and the signals that we see. And I think that creates debates and good conversations that are going on. Prior to LinkedIn, I, as you said, worked at Deco Group. So I started out of uh, university, fell into recruitment, like everybody says and started as a recruiter, did probably every job in recruitment and actually worked at the ADECO group for uh, nearly 16 years, uh, 10 years working for uh, the board uh, on strategy, innovation, anything to do with sort of HR, modernization. Um, and yeah, also what might be quite interesting is also did uh, nearly two years running my own business on advisory and, and and I'll touch on this probably through some of your questions but LinkedIn gave me the luxury or gives me the luxury actually to do side hustles so non-exec posts where I still get to advise businesses on HR HR tech uh, but I also do some non-for-profit work as well which is you know um, I'm not saying we're a young generation at all but I think having purpose-driven uh, projects that sit in parallel with with your day-to-day -day job is is a an important and growing trend as well. So I still keep my uh, my you know finger on the pulse with 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 many things as well. So brilliant. We'll brilliant. Start well, yep. I mean, uh, it's coming from a trusted source with all that data. When so many decisions in HR are data driven, um, it's great to have you here, Adam. So we're really looking forward to um, uh, hearing your uh, responses to some of the questions that uh, our members have put uh, when they signed up for the event. Now, if you do have an other questions throughout uh, the next uh, 50 minutes or so, then do use the chat facility and we'll try and get through those uh, as well, time permitting. But I mean, I went through all the questions, Adam, I shared them with you, and, and I think there were quite a few themes, namely tech, attraction, skills, hybrid working, retention, employer branding. So a huge mix. So we'll try and get through uh, some of these questions. So the first one, is from Elizabeth from uh, Pace Your Change. And she was wondering, what do you think is the most significant change in terms of how we will be working over the next five years? So the most significant change. Uh, that's a loaded question. So yeah, Dan, I don't know if you want to take the presentation off so we can see each other, but um, it's up sure. to you. Um, what, one thing I would say is I, I'm learning to before I answer the question, Elizabeth, um, I, I'm i learning to be uh, more vocal on the platform and uh, like us all, you know, I think uh, learn to be a creative writer and put perspective. So please, please do follow me. I'm, I'm love the feedback, love the conversation that the debate can can obviously continue on there. And if, if you need any data points, you know, outside of this, like message me directly. But so I think the biggest change and we'll, we'll start pretty top level here, Dan. Um, I've I've been in the whole talent world in many guises for what 24 years now, and certainly when you've been on sort of agency side, what what you see is, you know, very cyclical nature, very resilient um, 
type of industry one that's probably commoditized itself to some degree so so i think there's two things that have massively happened in the last two years and, and probably is the biggest change that i've seen we we've seen more transformation in the whole talent space probably in the last two to three years than i've ever seen before right. and many of the things that we've seen will we will not go back from now i'll try not to say pandemic two times but pandemic was obviously a very very difficult time for many but it but it has been the accelerant that has forced things that will probably have happened over time but but not necessarily yeah. in such a transformative way and what i mean by that is that the pace of change and transformation within talent is, mo is moving like i've never seen it before and it's dynamic and complex and many of the themes that we'll walk through today are fascinating because they're all hyper connected so you can't talk about skills without talking about generations. You can't talk about skills without talking about internal mobility. You've got DNI that integrates with that. So um, I think anybody that's working in, you know, a people officer role, CHRO, talent, or within HR as an umbrella for a company, I would say the world is really complex and it's now shifting from, I would say, uh, foundational or functional HR to systemic HR, which is all about integrated people strategy. Yeah, and, and that is a world that we're going to be living in, and that we won't go back. I think that's really exciting. You know, if you work in talent, I think our role is really exciting and meaningful. And the second thing I would say is there there are some givens here, and I'd love it if people don't agree to this. But um, you know, in most markets, and and I actually have a global job most markets are full employed yeah so but we also see two things going on one is every gen generation that's entering the workforce and we've got what about five generations and we've got gen alpha on the way yeah um we've got more generations in the workforce than ever before but every generation that's entering the workforce is getting smaller yeah so we see markets like germany or japan that that already have a problem with not enough workers Right. Um, and actually, many organizations are struggling to probably leverage all of the generations. So if I if I talk to you, Dan, about UK, I think we saw a million people exit the workforce yeah. uh, during the pandemic. Some was their own choice. Some was retirement. Some was repatriation. We won't go into Brexit here. Uh, and some was ill health and some have returned, but not all have. But certainly the people that chose to retire or take sabbaticals don't want to return in the same way. But yeah. actually, the, there's a huge talent pool in mature workers that actually are hugely valuable to an organization and really valuable to graduates from like coaching and mentoring. But things like workforce policy um, and the way companies are set up might not align to what those individuals want and right. that is something that's so so the reason i share that with full employment with reducing workers and the other thing which is and we we do a lot of analysis on this most job even if you and i or anybody in this call is not changing jobs yeah i i can tell you with very strong assurance your job is changing on you so yeah. I, I was curious being an ex-recruiter the, the skills that are required, and we, we see this through analysis of, of what skills are advertised on the platform. Yeah. Pe most people say, well, recruitment hasn't changed or TA hasn't changed. 
I can tell you fundamentally it has, you know, between 2015 and today, skills have changed about 21% in the UK from a recruiter. And in the next two years, that number will double. So you could be sitting in what, 2025, 2026, and evidentially you could say the role of a recruiter or TA has shifted around 40 to 45%. Right. That's almost half your job that would look different to what it did sort of 10 years ago. Okay. So, So I find that super interesting that actually many people are probably not totally clear or aware that their job is moving on them. And that's really important from who owns your own skill and upskilling development. I think there was an interesting study done, uh, I think it was by Randstad in the Netherlands. And, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was it was certainly over 65 to 70 percent. And, and I can find you the data point because I don't want to be um, give you the wrong data point. But it, an ordinary high number, which basically said, asked em- employees who's responsible for my or your uh, development okay. or upskilling yeah. and over 65 70 percent said my employer sure. or the government oh. which i thought was <laughs> i thought that was really like mind or the government. Mm. um so that was really interesting yeah. when you think it back to skills so 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 i think those are the major themes is that you know people's strategy yeah has looked like never before and we'll probably go into why it's all hyper-connected and it's moving at a pace and transformation that we've never seen. And I think that will continue. The whole labour market itself is becoming more challenged. And even if you're able to, most companies in the past have tried to recruit their way out of a problem um, Mm -hmm. or recruit the way to an opportunity. We just won't have enough people. And even the people that we have may not have the right skills. So organisations and anybody on this call that's in a talent leadership role, I, I think the balance of almost trying to retain your way out of the solution uh, mm. or the problem as well is an important area to explore. And, and this is about balance. And anybody on the, the call that's from a recruitment perspective, I think recruitment is going through a probably the biggest shift I will have seen in my career, which is I was trained all about sort of um, screen out. So I was the shortlister, pipelines, yeah. talent, um, which, you know, was disproportionate to the talent that was in the marketplace. But, you know, you, you're a f- fundamentally paid as a recruiter to to screen and quality control. Yeah. I think the role of a recruiter or even a, a talent acquisition professional will yeah. be about selecting, which will be advising organizations on what talent is available from a skills mm-hmm. point of view. And those people may not be that intermediary will need to educate the hiring manager that actually not only is it the wrong thing to do but actually you may not find the right talent Mm. within your business if you're hiring off education credentials or experience and job title if you look at skills and potential not only will you widen the talent pool you you will find a more proportional representation which d is a, a super important thing so i believe anybody in ta uh, agency or in-house will have a huge shift of moving the model from screen out to selecting okay interesting i mean uh, you, you touched on skills not just for uh, people involved in talent acquisition or recruitment or hr in general moving on in terms of um, the actual 
students and graduates who are entering the jobs market. Uh, perhaps we could touch on that a little bit because some of the questions are, um, are around, you know, the skill sets that graduates uh, need to enter the workplace and how, you know, are, are they better or less better prepared um, as things are moving so quick? We all know, you know, the minute someone starts a degree, maybe the, by the time they're finished, certain jobs haven't even been created. So mm -hmm. we're all about generating this skill set for the future. Um, and this came up quite a few times um, from our members. So um, there's there's one question here, um, if you can uh, tackle this one. What do, you, what do you see as one of the critical challenges, either for organizations or individuals in terms of future skills? So let's, let's look at, um, you know, hiring graduates and, and the kind of skills that we sh should be looking at. And this comes from Nicola from Aviva, so financial services. Um, perhaps we can take that uh, question. Yeah. I, I think people understand, if I start with this, I think I think people are starting to understand the why a skills first or a skill based approach yeah. is the right one, not only because of, you know, shrinking talent pools, but also you know, there are many people, and, and I'll give you examples, like in the US, many people spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, and I'm sure it's the same in the UK. People spend a lot of money on education, but we're seeing a growing number of people underhired, mm -hmm. you know, um, or potentially not even work ready. So are, are there different ways for people to enter, enter you know, the, the workforce in a different way? So, so I think that's something to, to definitely think about probably won't go into educational reform on this call but sure. you know i yeah, think you know that there is a, there is definitely a discussion required of is education uh private and public building the skills needed and i think dan way where you need to sort of think about here is there are clearly some professions that you know certification yeah. And academic accreditation are non-negotiable. You know, yeah. you might have things in life science, pharma, medical, etc., yeah. uh, accountancy, etc., where those are deemed requirements. Yeah. But there are so many jobs that the entry point has either been a certain level of degree or a, mm. a housing of degrees to to enter the workforce. But then they're going in either through apprenticeships or you know fast track grad schemes. And the question is, are they going through those schemes to, to build the skills. So uh, I think what employers need to think about, uh, and I think, and, and I feel very passionately about this, I, I think adopting a true skills first approach yeah. will generate a stronger connection point between internal workers, but more importantly, you know, graduates and, and people that are coming from into the workforce for their first opportunity because we're not selecting people out based on certain credentials and deemed experience now that becomes a challenge because when i've you know i was, I was in la two weeks ago at a big hr conference yeah and, and i think people get the why and the benefit but actually mobilizing that is is, is pretty difficult and and i'll explain a bit more on that is a lot of organizations maybe and, and and i'm not meaning to be disrespectful but i'm just giving you sort of general approaches there are people yeah. that are starting to do this well um in general most organizations do not understand the skills they have 
within yeah. the business. They, right. they have an idea of the jobs they have, but mm-hmm. do they under, understand the true skills, both hard and soft? And I think you've got to delineate between the two or differentiate between the two. Um, at a more macro or system level, there is no universal taxonomy mm-hmm. of skills. So you may be hiring someone with a resilience and so may I, so may I, but we may have a different interpretation of what resilience means into that organization. So when you talk to organizations about how do you start to employ or commence a skill-based or a skills-first strategy, it's a bit like how you mobilize a DNI strategy. It starts with you know your diversity data, or here yeah. it starts with your skills data and your skills taxonomy to understand what you have and what you need. And then I think you have to project, and this is maybe a bolder statement, you've got to project the skills that you will need for the future and hire those skills and put, once you've hired those skills, put people to projects and opportunities as opposed to put like fill jobs. It's not the way the world is going to work. It's going to be, we need certain skills to achieve whatever objectives or growth ambitions we have as a company. And and then we apply to that. And there's organizations that you would not expect within in insurance or financial that are now realizing that they're moving to a more product-based organization and they need to hire grads and people that have, um, you know, uh, like product marketing skills. So they're building product marketing teams. Yeah. They don't know quite yet what they're going to put them on. And they're building change and transformation specialists because the given is that the business is always going to be transforming. Yeah. And then when they've got the talent and they're applying those people out to projects and assignments. And that's super interesting for certainly graduates because people are attracted to projects and challenges mm. and where they can build new skills that align to their career goals. Yeah. People do not want to know what training I'm going to get. And, and I'll explain that. They kind of do, but they actually want to know what skills am I going to learn? And how does that align to my career goals, which is a nuance, but it's yes, it's an yeah. important nuance. So so I think there's a lot to figure out. Um, I think there's a lot of burden on the hiring manager and, and the people on on this uh, debate that may have a different perspective. But but there is a there is a transformational pinch point in a business, which is a lot always comes back to the hiring manager. And I think when you're running a talent strategy, you you've got to understand there may be know, operating priorities in a business that's one 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 priority might be DNI, so more inclusive recruiting, more diverse teams, but you also might have another objective that's running that's mobilizing internal talent. Right. Some of these become competing because actually to accelerate an inclusive environment and more diverse environment, you may need to hire from externally. Yeah. And you may not achieve that objective from if your organization is not already diverse. So, so I think we've just got to be careful on the hiring manager front to mm-hmm. help them understand. Also, if you're going to hire somebody that's got 70% of the skills, HR and L&D and TA need to really come together because if I'm a hiring manager and somebody is within or external that's got 78% of the skills, I'm going to need the confidence to know that those skills, skill gaps can be supported by unified talent process within the business to help them be successful and they should be even more successful because they should be a cultural fit if they're internal Mm -hmm. so there's a lot to figure out on the um uh the employer side and i think when i've spoken to a lot of companies they're 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 trialing this within talent acquisition and hr yeah um i'm quite proud of this but you know 
feeling very connected to the recruitment industry. Mm. The recruitment industry is a, probably an outlier example of a, an industry that has actually been hiring based on skills for many years because yeah. pe- people look at their personas, the potential, the skills, uh, less about where you've come from, uh, mm. per se. And I, and I think that's been a really good thing. The other thing, which is typically where people are starting, and I think it's the wrong area, is when when we're having conversation around skills first or skill based. Yeah. A lot of the onus is goes on to the candidate. So yeah. you need to, you need to build out your skills as a graduate. Yes, you need to show what experience you've got, but you need to showcase your skills. Yes. Which is fine and needed, and I think there's ways through tech that that can help that. And I think that's where the industry needs to come in to help people understand what are what are skills, experiences, and projects you've done in early career or um, education that are transferable and yep. important to know. Yep. But equally, the same level of work and effort around skills needs to happen on the employer side because and I was speaking to a company the other day, they're like, we're really passionate about skills first hiring. And, yeah. you know, we can start to see a shift in people showcasing their skills. And I was like, um, so do you still run job specs? And they went, yeah. yeah. I was like, all right. Have you started thinking about skill specs? Right. Oh, okay. Be- because if, if you've got a job spec, a traditional job spec that has yeah. job title, typically five years experience, mm-hmm. you know, that industry, these are sort of, screen out criteria yeah. was actually if they wrote a skill spec and then they were searching on skill spec it's more likely to graft across the organization yeah which is really interesting and that that goes you can't do that without doing skills taxonomy yeah. but yeah. I, I think that's a really interesting yeah. to think about yeah i mean uh, that speaks the language that um graduates are familiar with because we've met lots of students that you know the minute they set foot at university is the start of their career so they are there for the next three to four years to hoover up skills to produce a brilliant CV that makes them employable. That's the whole premise. And we speak to um, graduate job seekers who you know, present themselves in that way, that they have these transferable, be them hard or soft skills mm-hmm. that become very um, attractive to recruiters. Um, so I think they, they are aligned um, where it's uh, particularly interesting is where employers are less bothered about the particular university grade and even the subject that has happened a lot more in the last five years um they may be uh, may have preferences for certain universities but the actual preference for a, a certain degree subject and there's a common misconception with law you have to have done a law degree to get into law that's not the case and going back to your earlier point there are probably about 30 careers that do require a particular degree yeah you know accounting or a pilot or a doctor or a nurse so you know that's still the case but there are graduates entering the market with an understanding of their skill set a lot more um which has been a change that we've seen on, on the on the side of the actual candidates themselves so in terms of employers what's very interesting there is how you suggested moving away from a job spec to a skill spec um and that that's very interesting and and working out an audit within your organization to see where the gaps are and then um developing a plan to fill those gaps with certain individuals yeah, that have those skills so yeah and and i think dana i mentioned like systemic hr i mean yeah 
I, I'm giving my opinion here. I think organisations will, you know, for me, that's foundational, you know, understand the taxonomy, understand the skills you've got in your business, you know, build your new hiring methodology and process based on skills. And I think that plays favourably not just into graduates, but underrepresented groups as well, which is really important. Um, and it widens the talent pool. And, and we see in our data that as a minimum, it's going to widen the talent pool 10x yes. by taking it, which I think is really exciting and important. There are certain parts of the labour force and the labour market where it's going to 10, it's going to like, 45x you know mm. taking that approach which which i think is really important i think where we'll start to see this evolve and this is a future work conversation is i think organizations are going to understand better once they've understood the foundations what are what i what are something that i would call um adjacent skills yeah. so i'll give you a good example um, and again, people on uh, this debate may, may um, have a different view. Yeah. In the pandemic, we saw a huge amount of people go on furlough, and I'm talking specifically around the UK, in hospitality. Right. For, for all the reasons that we know. And they went on furlough. But if you plug into our data and you look at the skills of people that are in hospitality, you know, yeah. the aggregated skills, and you look at them being disproportionately impacted but then you look at industries that had hiring shortages so yeah. i don't know what you did down in the pandemic but i can tell you from what i've seen is a, a lot of people started building and investing the money they had because they weren't spending it into houses and sorting their domestic structures out and then pursuing hobbies interests side hustles yeah um a lot of this required or, or saw a spike in e-commerce, you know, yeah. spend. Yeah. And what did we all want? We wanted to still speak to someone. Where's my delivery? Where's my order? How do I sign up to that? Yeah. And so you saw a shortage of effectively contact center professionals. Right. But actually, if you look at the skills match, it's somewhere in the region of high 80s, early 90s of someone in hospitality from a skills point of view mm. that has the ability to transfer to contact center. Right. Yeah. But that connection point wasn't there. And, and I think, you know, it sounds like an obvious thing when I mm. explain it. Of like you meet mm. someone that's a bar manager or a hostess, he or she has certain skills around personality, yeah. communication, uh, empathy, adaptability. What do you want when you speak to someone on the phone? You, you want yeah. a number of those skills. Yeah. The hard skills of, of learning a booking system versus, you know, a CRM system. Mm easily trainable and that's your hard skill gap yeah um and and that's what i think is, is really interesting is organizations starting to think about adjacent skills so in a business okay. we can't hire enough project coordinators but actually the skills required for this are this and maybe there's people in that team or that part of the that actually are only about 10 to 20 percent away and actually adjacent skills are the most easily transferable um, right, and I okay. think that's where we'll start to think about that. Interesting. I'm going to throw one thing into the mix about this topic on skills from Jill at EY. She said, are we too preoccupied with skills? Um, I don't think so. Um, I think, you know, we, we can't get away from the fact that 
you know, uh, the workforce has, has been disproportionately probably represented. People, you know, that have, have had, you know, strong investment in education and have good schooling have managed to get ahead. And I think, you know, when we think about, you know, every organization is has DEI on their agenda and they want yeah. to have more diverse teams that are more representative of the community that they're operating yeah. and serving. So I think skills is a is a very important lever to unlock underrepresented groups and more diverse. And we all know from every data yeah. point, and you don't need LinkedIn to tell you that, you only have to, to Google and e- sure. EY would probably have data on this of like diverse teams win and are more successful. So there's a there's a business reason. And I think the other thing, Dan, that we can't get away from is skill, talent scarcity, skill shortages, full employment. You know, it's going to be cyclical, but the reality is that we are going to have a an aging workforce um, yeah. and we are going to have not enough talent in the business. So we are going to have to try new techniques. And if skills manages to unlock talent pools of 10x, 20x, 30x, that's something that we need to put time and attention in the right areas. I think we've got to work out how we do that. But yeah. with anything, you know, we, we'll probably go to AI, but with anything, there's a bit of a hype cycle around it. But now yeah. people are really trying to figuring out how does this become meaningful, actionable and relevant, not just for graduates or underrepresented groups, mm. but... If I work for a company and they have a skills approach, yeah. I think that gives me more opportunities. And and I think we will see more people have more dynamic careers because if an organization's always hired someone from the big four or financial services, but they want to go and work in pharma, it's been pretty difficult because it's all well, you've got no pharma experience. Yeah. But you may have all the skills. It's going yeah, to unlock. Yeah. Um uh. and was really interesting. I did um a guest lecture at um, LSE, which was really interesting. And it was fascinating that these, you know, three-year MBA grads were saying, look, the school is, you know, and the school and any guidance is sort of saying, this is the the, the typical path people would tread. So you've come to here and actually we're going to be able to get you interviews with the obvious companies, which is great. And many people want to explore that. But you're also seeing a growing change of new generation saying, oh, I want to. That's interesting, but I'm worried. Should I, maybe I want to go and do a startup in, you know, ed tech or med tech. Yeah. yeah. Um, but does that mean if I pick that lane, I can't move around? And they, they, you know, there's a lot of, I think. Lack of career confidence with people, graduates or early in career yeah. or coming out of education that feel like if they pick a lane and I think skills unlocks that transferability, which actually makes the labour market more dynamic, in my view. Yeah, well, we're starting to hear more about portfolio careers. Yeah. You know, and that, that's a new term and, and how things are a lot more fluid. You can zig and zag throughout your entire career. Um, and it, it's, it's becoming more acceptable, like you say, to think differently about someone's experience just because it hasn't been in that industry they could have transferable skills and very often someone from outside of an industry brings completely new perspectives. So I think, totally. uh, yeah. And, and I'll, I'll think about my career. I mean, I, I didn't do this in any deliberate way. It was probably more by fortune, but I could probably try and now take credit for it. Um, there was a certain area of my career. It was like, I just wanted to do something different 
and I never really knew at the time, but my I had a huge energy around international. Mm. So I was like, I'm going to go and get experience doing some international jobs, but I'm I'm going to live abroad. I'm going to try and learn a new language. And I was very fortunate that I got to go and live in Switzerland for nine years and have a job that you know sounds a bit excessive, but was traveling 300,000, 400,000 miles a year yeah. to all walks of life. Um, but when I look back on that, what was driving me was not necessarily that sort of structured progression. It was yeah. actually that gives me a whole load of experiences that are going to be really helpful in I got to learn how to work in a matrix. I got how to learn how to work in different cultures, companies, different sizes. And that sort of unconscious view of actually probably the way people are thinking more deliberately now as graduates is actually it's going to be a collection of skills and experiences that actually it doesn't really matter that the the outline path actually I may even get to quicker or find new avenues by almost you know yeah. I was speaking to, to one of the team and both her her boy and girl are sort of in Cub Scouts and Brownies and it's a bit like you know picking up different experience projects uh, badges along the way okay yeah which is going to give you kind of opportunities and yeah, yeah. it's for me it's yeah. been one of the most important things and and the other thing Dan which I think is you know this is from our data point you know people are still obviously interested especially in this economic environment very interested around obviously income yeah you know that's going to be top of mind what we've seen in our data which might you, you might say well they mean the same things adam what, what are you on about but but i don't think they do so before the pandemic you know flexibility ranked really high in terms of what candidates yeah. need and 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 this doesn't change that much actually per generation we have the data right. cut by generation but what we've seen jump to sort of second, almost equaling first place with compensation and benefits has been the term balance. OK, which I think is really nuanced, but really relevant. Yeah, because I think what we had the luxury of in lockdown and there weren't many luxuries, um, that was that we had a bit more time. Yeah. And once we would sort of nested and organised, we actually got to pursue some of our own personal purpose. And Gen Z, for example, and, and future generations coming in do not need a company to give them purpose. They need a company to align with their purpose because people are already set up with their own purpose. But what that meant is that people have experimented, they've tried, they've innovated, they've done non-for-profit, they've done their own projects, their own startups. And now they are thinking about work, not as the everything it's not work life and personal life it's life mm. um and we'll go into this topic probably but you know there is in my view there's no such thing anymore and again might be provocative as as hybrid or remote work right okay yeah that's... work is just work you know yeah work, i mean that brings know... us to quite a few questions carry on yeah yeah but work is work and i think actually people are assessing where they work yeah. People in in a market where there is talent shortages, people can define to a point how, where and when they do their best work. But many, certainly graduates, will be thinking about, but I want to be able to balance that with my own project or my own business or my own ambition. And it could be personal, professional. And, you know, I've seen people 
you know in my friendship circle that have become travel agents and they still do that they want to get a cheap holiday but um but what you see is that is that organizations have got to be adaptive around allowing people to have side hustles and run number of portfolios not just what's personal life and what's professional it's all about integrating balance aligned to people's purpose and that changes by generation as well okay well here's a question what is your view on the four-day week that has recently been trialed by organizations and this is from helena at td cynex four day week and i remember you said something at the (laughs) event in the gherkin saying there's no way i'd get all my work done in four days which i think (laughs) yeah Um, so (sighs) it's a great question helena um i don't know whether you you want my filtered or unfiltered (laughs) but but um i I think what and and everyone in the school would know this just as much as i do the there is no one size fits all anymore you know that you know we and as I said, you, you've got that going on where people have tasted flexibility. Um, organizations in in the main are trying to find the right balance. Yeah. And that's a balance now, not just between the company and the employer. You've got a third component, which is you've got team, yes, company and employer. So there's three parties and you've also got to make decisions of what what is aligned with the culture and the the values of the organization and and that that is is de- very different but every generation wants something different right you know i've got people that are early in career and they want to be in the office all the time yes but our data would tell you they're not coming in to see adam yeah, yeah. they're coming in for friendship so sure. social connection is worth the commute um but i also have people that you know, have an early fa- uh, younger families and they only want to come in once a month and, you know, that works for them. But how do you manage that sort of integrated environment? So, and I will answer this question. Uh, what, I, what I would say, Dan, is, and this might be provocative, pe- people are experimenting, which is great. I think yeah. people need to understand I'm not just doing this because it's following the crowd. So we're hearing that this is the thing and we need to experiment that. I think people really need to understand what is important for the organic evolution of their organization. So what's their purpose? What fits? You know, many recruitment businesses were born on presenteeism. So it's quite a shift to to go back. Um, But I think really understanding what works for you. um, I think there's a lot in here around our managers equipped to manage in a more blended world right um because asking people to come in and why that's that's a different conversation yeah. on the four day work week i think there is a difference between flexibility or balance and workforce policy right so we could and i know you want to debate because this is a debate um i think it's a good thing yeah. But 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 I don't think it's something that is a flexible offering. I, I actually think it's a, if a company says we're, we're doing four day work yeah. weeks and hey, we now are flexible working. I'm like, well, it's not flexible because for others it, it might be restrictive. And yeah. you cited my example, which was um, 
I'd like that to be the optionality. And for some of my team, that would be really appreciated. But for others, it might cause more stress. That's the problem. Um, yeah. Which is, yeah. that's another day I can't do that. So other people might yeah. say, I like the idea, but I would like to go for the option of a no meeting Friday. So we're right. still working, but we have no internal meeting. So okay. I can kind of get stuff done. Yeah. So I think what organizations have got to think about is, what's important to their business to maintain the DNA and the fabric, but what options are there for people to define and shape, you know, how many conferences do you go to now? And it's not about you go to that session, that session, pick your own path. Yes. Uh, and I think four day week is an option, but it's mm -hmm. not one that certain generations would attach to. And exactly. also depending what jobs you do as well. Yeah. You need, you need an option, you know, four day week, flexible work, you know, because like you said earlier, we have five generations working now, you know, mm -hmm. some with families, children, the single, you, you know, young, oh, you know, real diverse backgrounds. How can you just say, you know, this is flexible working and this is the doctrine four day week. And then, you know, that's tick well, the Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. you, you know, flexibility, flexibility for me might be, yeah, I want to start 11 on Monday because I really enjoy and have had the joy of taking my son to school on yeah. a Monday. And that's something I'd, I'm not going to compromise on. But well, that's a school strike strike today. So there'll yeah. be quite a lot of people impacted by that, for instance. So Exactly. So yeah. I think it's about balance and organizations giving people flexibility. But I, th I think when you determine a certain change, it's not a bad thing. I think it's it's really great that companies are doing it. But but I think we have to be clear that it's not a flexibility or a, a blended. It, it is actually a change of policy, and they are different things yeah. um, as well. It's open to interpretation. A big topic and very hard to to get right with so many different generations and people from diverse backgrounds to to get it right. But giving them options um, is is a step in the right direction. And then this leads into another question quite nicely from Sally at Strategic ABM, saying, "How do you protect the culture?" in a remote world, especially for younger team members. So, you know, if everyone's not in the office Monday to Friday, nine to five for those social connections, they're here, there and everywhere. What happens to the culture? Well, I think if you get it wrong, it erodes the culture. So I think. I, I was I was. Um, I had a very I wrote an article which I don't know whether it was just me having more time in the pandemic, but you, you can check on my feed. Um, I wrote about something called the trust contract. Right. And, you know, especially when we were in extreme situations where everyone was at home, mm -hmm. even though that was a really big shock for everyone. Yeah. Actually, it was a lot simpler because before we were all at work, yeah. <laughs> then we were all at home. So yeah. we were adapting but it was sort of moving the crowd from one to the other. Now we have this optionality. We've yeah. got some organizations being more directive than others. Um, we've got generations wanting different things. Yeah. And it's super complicated mm. from protecting the cultural tenets of the business. Absolutely. So so when you talk about, um, when you talk with CEOs and, and C-suites, what you tend to see is that they they're struggling to figure this out. But when I work with them, I often say, 
do you understand like the very essence of your business? What what makes that culture alive yeah. and live yeah. in the business? If you understand that, and for some it be might be actually for us to be us, we need to be in once a week or twice a week or three days a week. And actually, sure. but when we're in, let's not all sit in a meeting room when we could be on Zoom or Teams or whatever, but let's use our workplaces differently. So I think there's a massive risk of, of cultural erosion, but I think people have got to rethink um, how they do that. And, and the reason I talk about the trust contract is, you know, we, we see some data which says, again, I I will send you the exact percentage, but something like 85, 89% of us yeah. Yeah. feel we're productive working from home. Now we right. could debate what productive means. Okay. Um, certainly we can prove out through microsoft data that people are busy they're working longer yeah 45 minutes people are sending or on more teams calls they're also multitasking because you can see that through teams okay so they're definitely busier mm -hmm. um but something in the region of 15 percent of managers Think well, 15 percent of managers yeah. believe people are being productive. So if you think yeah. about that delta, yeah. so th there's a principle going on called productivity paranoia. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that, especially in a market now that's more pressurized, there's a lot of people that if I can't see you, mm. I don't know what you're doing. And yeah. I think what comes into the equation, this is why I talk about trust contracts. It's fine to make committed agreements that are aligned to the culture. So the company has to be very clear that yeah. we might lose people or we might not attract people. But the essence of what we do live and breathe for our culture and values is dependent upon us being in the office two days a week. Sure. Connecting like that. You've obviously got to then empower team norms. So allow freedom of teams because teams need adaptability. And you've also got to give the the that they employ some flexibility around building their structure but what actually needs some work here and again it probably goes back to the the mid-level manager yeah is i think there is a skill gap around you know leading hyper connected uh and integrated teams from a generation and a working way point of view and actually the trust contract is all about this sort of commitment or promise-based management of what every party needs and commits to. And as long as that goes away, we lead on the principle of trust. Yeah, managing expectations yeah. either so, side. So yeah. mani managing not to task, managing to outcome. Right. And that is okay. a skill evolution of leadership. And I think yeah. that's where organisations need to help their leadership start thinking about it. Because if you manage to outcome as opposed to task, and actually everyone's clear on the the tenants for the candidate or the employee that of the team and that of the company and it's very connected to living the the, the culture living it can work harmoniously and i you know that that is living in many companies um but yeah i think it, yeah. it's definitely a risk and again this is why i talk about it's all moving super quick well yeah, yeah. and it's hyper connected as well yeah, and on that subject of things moving super quick, you know, technology and of course uh, AI and Chat GPT. I mean, there's a lot of questions. You know, people are nervous about, you know, what sectors are going to be affected. First of all, will it, you know, affect my job? And you know, I'm trying to screen university leavers who are using it themselves. Uh, you know, let let's focus on on the good, the good bits. How is it going to help in the future of work? Um, 
specifically artificial intelligence how's it going to make yeah. our jobs easier how are we going to get more stuff thing i mean it's going to take out a lot of the boring stuff some of the admin but well i know we don't have a huge amount of time but um what, what i would say is i'm still learning about this and i think we're all learning about this yeah. um and there's a big difference between ai and generative ai and yeah. different phases of, of ai um i'm an optimist and but we also have to be a realist in this we're, we're in a bit of a hype cycle at the moment yes. um you know the, there's a lot of conversations needed firstly on responsible ai that's a very very important factor you've got um what does ai mean to jobs creation and jobs impact yeah i think but let's remember in in terms of humankind and um you know we've been through industrial revolutions we've been through um you know we're 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 just in another cycle and, and you know i think with every cycle we've seen i'm sure you've all seen the uh yeah. the old school sort of vintage english picture of somebody in i think in the streets of manchester with a, a pole and a tapper you know that was the alarm clock waking mm -hmm. people up for the factories that job went away but new jobs are created so you know it'll be job creation and there'll be job uh, impact but i think so that links into the, yeah. the skill piece um i think from an industry point of view i think people have to learn and learn how to develop somebody told me two weeks ago which i thought i'm still thinking about it dan this is why i'm looking in the air it's my yeah. thinking posture huh. um he was a professor Right. So way smarter than me. And he said, Adam, you're probably not old enough, but there was a lot of hype when the calculator was introduced. Yeah. So what do you mean by that? He said, well, everybody was saying people, students are not going to mm. learn the foundations of maths. Right. And it's going to be a level playing field. How do we know mm. who's advanced? who's advancing and who's not because everyone's going to have access to sure. the answers and and he was trying to draw some parallels with ai to say that well does everyone's application look the same where's you know where's a differentiation point but what he said which i thought was really interesting is what the calculator did mm. was change learning of maths so people right. still learn foundational yeah. maths calculators are not introduced to a certain age and actually now the 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 bar has been leveled to allow people and students to explore more advanced concepts of maths yeah and i thought that was a really nice and positive way of thinking about you know the fact that generative ai you know will have an impact but it will impact certainly on repetitive tasks but you know certainly in our talent space that we're all super passionate around we're going to have to learn new skills yeah. you know we yeah. we are going to have to learn more around you know, one thing that students have an advantage of, of probably, and I don't know you to this level, Dan, but, you know, they're more data literate than we are. So things yeah. like data analysis, uh, storytelling through data and insights, you know, EQ skills, these are going to be the role of uh, more and more the role, but also things that we do that take time or yeah. are not of consistent quality will be improved. But it, so, so it will advance 
and water, the water levels should rise. Now, that's all with a caveat that it's new yeah. and it needs to be governed and protected correctly. Um, but I think it's exciting, but it, it's early days. Yeah. But 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 I, I see that parallels that the professor told me of actually it's going to allow people to explore more advanced concepts and, and we could apply that to any industry. Um, yeah. Yeah, 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 you're absolutely right. I mean, you mentioned at the start, having been in the industry for over 20 years, you've seen various cycles come and go. Um, and we're in the middle of one right now. Um, it is exciting, it is interesting, it is challenging, um, but there's certainly positive things that will help us um, improve our jobs, improve our lives, um, and hopefully uh, make things a little bit easier. But right now, it might be quite hard to see. So it'd be very but, but interesting. But Dan, on that, you know, and Normally, with every economic situation, and, and let's decipher the difference between the pandemic, which was an economic shock versus, yeah. you know, an economic cycle. You know, but when we had the financial crisis in sort of 2009, what tends to happen and historians would, would it's not uh, backdated historians, but they would say in most times where productivity is being questioned. Yeah. Um, Technology plays a role. So if, if you work in our world, what did we see in sort of 2010 to 2012? We saw the rise of ATSs and VMSs. Yeah. Right. So it's not a new concept that technology comes into play. Now, if you were more of a futurist, you could argue that on the one hand, we've got smaller entrance of generations and we have we have a people scarcity issue over time. So one could challenge and say generative AI is going to fill some of that gap. Right. But actually the, the evolution of the skills that are going to be required in the working population will just be different or more advanced and explored concepts. But very early days, one to explore. Definitely the, 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 um, the responsible AI is a super important one. Um, but I think there is a lot of companies sort of I think it starts with education. You know, yeah. I'm certainly exploring that and seeing how it can can help. Right, that's a good way to end our um, debate. It all starts with education. Thank you, Adam. Um, I'll give you a breath. You haven't stopped um, speaking for for around uh, 60 minutes, so we do appreciate your time. Uh, but most importantly, we appreciate your insights that you're sharing from the huge data sets that you've got. And unfortunately, we're out of time. Um, so thank you everyone for coming along today. As I said, this uh, has been recorded um, to listen back to. But also, if Adam's OK with this, we might invite you onto the LinkedIn group to answer some of the other outstanding questions that we didn't manage to cover um, today, if that's all right with you um, to answer in the next few totally. days. And if, um, if people want to um, connect and follow, I'm, sure. I'm trying to explore some of these conversations. What, one thing I would say, Dan, is um don't stress not everyone's yeah. figured all this out i think it's uh, a really exciting time for anybody in talent i think there's a professionalization and increased collaboration um yeah. but anybody involved in the world of talent has never had a more important role to play which is exciting uh, but it's going to require um people to collaborate more to explore new themes leverage share yeah. Yeah. um and, and i think that's a really exciting um prospect and one to to be great to be part of so i'm trying to write more about this but please feel free if i didn't cover anything or you have a different opinion or you've got questions 
we've got a ton of reports. I didn't want to go with slides today, Dan, but you know, if people do no, want fine. anything, then I'm yeah. happy to share. Good. Well, it's great to talk about the future of work and at least we're not talking about going into another pandemic. That would be really bad. So I think we've got lots to be grateful for yeah. um, and uh, lots of lessons from that. So, yeah, it'll be very interesting to see how this unfolds and I'm sure it's going to work out uh, great for early talent recruiters. I'm just going to quickly uh, finish by sharing my final slide just to announce our next event. This is actually in person. So we're going to have a working lunch at the BDO office. Uh, in Marleybone in London next Wednesday, in fact, on the 12th of July, 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. There's the QR code if you want to find out a bit of information. Uh, limited numbers. Um, it should be a very, very good event. We've got uh, a senior person from the Trade Unions Congress, TUC, Kate Bell. Um, she'll be giving a keynote uh, speech uh, next Wednesday. So if you are free, do come along. Uh, Adam, once again, thank you very much. And uh, Class dismissed.